Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, we we didn't follow through on our weekly plan um, this last week or so. Um, we got a little bit longer gap than we wanted to. But the good news is that we have some, in my opinion, really exciting stuff in the works for you coming up. Um, we're kind of diving in to labor issues, broadly speaking. Um, and today, we're going to try to set that up for you by a little bit of a you know, slight, slightly different kind of episode than usual. We are not going deep on sport today. Um, we're going to dive into the, labor, the, the broader labor questions that are confronting um, the United States right now in the form of striketober, a strike wave uh, this October that has swept the country and I think is maybe changing the sort of terrain of labor politics in the United States right now. So we felt like it was kind of necessary, uh, appropriate to, to dive into those issues and, and explore you know, what, what is actually happening in the United States right now. And then in some follow-up episodes, we're going to look at more sports-specific sites of labor that we are kind of always thinking about and talk to some folks who are really connected in those contexts and are involved in kind of doing the work and uh, setting the policy. And so I I think you're going to be really excited to hear uh, from the guests that we have in store. Uh, So with that said, um, just remember, please, to... uh, you know, share the show as much as you possibly can. Uh, follow us on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. Uh, support our Patreon if you are able. And of course, uh, please, you know, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and by the way, this is Nathan Coleman Lamb speaking to you, and I am joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi, so glad to be here. Yeah, you're going to hear more from Johanna uh, <laughs> in the actual episode itself. Um, so with that said, uh, I'm going to send it to our interview with the great Maximilian Alvarez. Maximilian Alvarez is editor-in-chief of The Real News and host of The Working People podcast. He is also, officially, the most frequent guest of this show, despite not being a sports scholar, an athlete, or a sports journalist. Uh, So that should give you a pretty good idea about how we feel about his work. Uh, Max, we brought you here today to discuss an issue that is only tangentially related to sports, uh, although, frankly, I wish that wasn't the case. Uh, and and that, what that is, is Striketober. What we are hoping you can do for us and listeners is break down what Striketober is, what you think it means, and how we can demonstrate solidarity. Uh, and before we get into it, I want to just start by cribbing a little bit to set the scene from a fabulous Intercept article by Jonah Furman and Gabriel Winant uh, that kind of lays out that terrain. Since October 1st, we have seen strikes occurring at Kellogg's, with 1,400 production workers off the job in four states, John Deere, with 10,000 workers off the job for the first time in 35 years, 2,000 hospital workers in Buffalo, 450 steel workers in Huntington, West Virginia, a one-day strike of 2,000 telecom workers in California, and that is in addition to ongoing strikes by Alabama coal miners, Massachusetts nurses, Kentucky whiskey makers, and Nevada bus drivers. There has also been a strike. There have also been strike authorizations from 37,000 Kaiser healthcare workers, as well as film and television workers, who I believe are now voting on 
uh, potentially a new contract that was signed in the wake of that strike authorization. So with all of that context in mind, Max, would you mind walking us through the context for some of these specific strikes? What are the issues? Why have these workers taken such a drastic step? And what do they hope to accomplish? All right. So I'll do my best, but I guess uh, I'll start up top by saying thanks for uh, having me on, gang. Um, you guys know I love the show and I'm always honored to be invited back on. Uh, I promise listeners I used to be an athlete, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> you know, there is like some sort of connective tissue here with sports and I'll try to kind of, uh, you know, highlight that as I go along here. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, like you were saying, uh, Nate, like the obvious context here, right. Is that, uh, workers in this country have been treated like crap for a very long time <laughs> and like, and that, that really only got, uh, worse over the COVID-19 pandemic. And like, in a lot of ways, I probably don't have to give a whole lot of context there because hopefully people should just kind of know and sense that, right? Whether you were working from home and suddenly found yourself working more than ever and found your employer kind of putting more demands on your time as you also tried to juggle childcare and staying sane over the course of the pandemic. I think that was something of an unexpected phenomenon for a lot of us to, to realize that staying home and working remotely translated to basically never having work end. I know that that sure as hell has been the case for me, but you know, also for folks who have you know, had to go into work um, during the course of the pandemic, you know, there are a lot of horror stories that I think we all heard about or experienced ourselves, right? You know, there was this sort of moment in the early days of the pandemic where it felt like we may be kind of actually experiencing something special where people were suddenly realizing, perhaps for the first time, how vital uh, working people are and how much, you know, the working class essentially holds society up and keeps it from completely collapsing. That was very much the case throughout the pandemic, right? None of us would have made it through this uh, for those of us who did make it through this. And let's not forget that a lot of people have died. Um, but, you know, I think that the the people who kept society from crumbling were the people who were, you know, risking their lives and their health, um, many of whom never really wanted that or or signed up for that. Um, just to kind of make a paycheck. And, you know, in so doing, these are the folks delivering our groceries. These were the folks uh, processing and delivering our packages. These are the folks who were being brought in to, you know, sanitize every possible surface after a COVID breakdown, right? These were the healthcare workers who, you know, really saw the absolute worst of the pandemic and who saw and, and kind of dealt with that tremendous human pain um, that has been concentrated in hospitals because of all of the collective failures of our society to adequately address COVID-19. And I guess to, for listeners, what I mean by that is, you know, I've spoken to quite a few nurses and, and uh, RNAs and, and other hospital technicians you know, it's it's really a crime what we've done to these folks. Um, to say nothing of folks working as home care health work, health home care health aides, 
uh, folks working in retirement homes. Um, you know, I think most of us just kind of like assume that people who were there knew what they signed up for and they were kind of taking care of business. But if you actually look close, if you talk to folks working in healthcare, you'll realize how catastrophically we have failed them and how, you know, the kind of whether it's the media um, from Fox News, especially, but but not exclusively, you know, pushing conspiracy theories and and promoting vaccine hesitancy the people who see the results of that are the people in hospitals and these are also people who have been risking their own lives these are people who have been working longer hours and hospitals have been denying them the extra staff that they need um by and large hospitals can't retain staff because they're pushing them so hard and so the folks who are still there are working longer hours under uh, more stressful conditions and every move every wrong move that we've made dealing with this pandemic has just translated to more work more misery more exhaustion for for folks like workers in the healthcare industry and this is to say nothing of you know the struggles that we've also heard about in places like Amazon right Amazon's business model its e-commerce model has has exploded over the course of the pandemic. It was like the pandemic was was made by God as like an assist for a company like Amazon so that the more that small businesses and mid-sized businesses were essentially wiped off the map during the pandemic, that mostly went to Amazon, right? You know, Amazon has absorbed more of the economy into itself um and thus it has been pushing you know its delivery drivers its fulfillment center workers you know like all all this kind of massive uh under this massive underclass that makes you know one and two day shipping possible for a population that was ordering more stuff online than ever before you know that underclass has been again like the like the healthcare workers bearing the brunt of this kind of weird two years that we've been in and we we all know how shittily Amazon treats its workers and there were a lot of stories of outbreaks covid outbreaks uh, a lot of stories of people uh kind of just just like being disciplined for stuff that was out of their control and and all that crap so i, I go into all of this to to kind of say is that like you know there is no one reason why we're kind of seeing what we're seeing um, and that is like, like you said at the top right now, we're in with what many are calling strike Tober. Uh, and for listeners that is kind of just highlighting what, um, Nate read from the passage in the intercept article from Jonah and, and Gabe is that, you know, we are seeing, you know, not historic levels of strikes by any means, right? You know, the, the U S workforce used to strike a lot more than it did now. And really the strike, the number of strikes that we're seeing right now is probably kind of comparable to what we saw in the 80s. And no one, you know, really looks at the 80s as like the heyday of American organized labor. In many ways, it was the decade that Ronald Reagan and the business class really kind of took a, a sledgehammer to the labor movement. But even so, there were more strikes then. And after that hammer was taken to the labor movement, you know, the movement really was put on its heels. It really shrank um, to the point that now we are at historic 
low union density, meaning that like the percentage of American workers who are part of a union is like lower now than it's basically ever been. And, uh, you know, that that process meant that, you know, unionized workers have taken a lot of concessions over the past four decades. Um, they've really been on their heels, really kind of at the mercy of the bosses. And, you know, we've seen a corresponding decrease in labor militancy over that time, right? Fewer strikes, um, fewer uh, kind of uh, aggressive demands made on companies, more just, uh, you know, less bargaining, more begging, basically, is, is kind of been the name of the game for the American workforce over the past 40 uh, plus years in general. And in that same time, right? This is why I tell folks there's no one reason for what we're seeing now, but if you look at the larger kind of bird's eye view of kind of what led us here, it kind of seems obvious why workers would be so pissed and why not only we're seeing a lot of strikes happen right now, but we're also um, seeing what many are calling the great resignation, which is historic levels of workers voluntarily quitting their jobs. Um, in August, we, we just got kind of numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that said that in August, the rate of voluntary quits was 2.9%, which amounted to 4.3 million American workers who voluntarily quit their job in August alone, which is the, the highest number of workers who have quit in a single month since the Bureau of Labor Statistics started tracking that data uh, in, in 2000. Um, but that included in August, you know, some 892,000 workers in, in hospitality and food and service jobs, 721,000 quit in retail in August alone, uh, in the healthcare sector, over 500,000 workers quit in August, right? So we are seeing something kind of happening here, both with people who are maybe not in a union or who are, but you know, like there, there, there are a lot of people who are actually saying, I quit people who are leaving, you know, these crappy jobs, um, as we kind of work our way out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there are also, you know, folks in unions, um, or some kind of more militantly organized, uh, you know, segments of workers who are staying at their jobs and trying to fight for better working conditions better pay. And, you know, just to, I guess, put a final bow on, on this and then I'll shut up is, um, you know, I, I was mentioning, right, the longer view of the past like four decades that led us to this point, you know, just to kind of lay it out for folks. Um, you know, if you look at like all these charts uh, that, that kind of plot economic development in the United States over the past 40 years, you see in very kind of stunning and stark relief you know, what kind of how much the working class has been uh, beaten down and exploited uh, and how basically we are all getting robbed blind. And what I mean by that is that, you know, after 1980, basically, there are a number of graphs. One will show you that union density, right, has kind of essentially been plummeting ever since then, right, coinciding with Reagan breaking the PATCO strike with, uh, you know, basically declaring open season on the labor movement. Um, not only in the in the public sector, but in the private sector. And so union density has gone down. Uh, coinciding with that, workers have become more productive than ever before. So workers are producing more, they're generating more profits. 
Um, and yet, um, the amount of uh, the percentage of those profits that workers are taking home uh, compared to the percentage that like bosses and investors and basically the one percent are taking home are, are diametrically opposed. Like that, those graphs go in completely opposite directions after the 1980s. All the money is going to the top. And workers' real wages since 1980, by and large, have just been stagnant, right? You know, they 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 have workers' wages have not kept up with the cost of uh, of living. Uh, right now, workers are feeling the squeeze with inflation, and you know, meanwhile, the bosses are trying to kind of give them like you know one dollar raises that adjusted for inflation essentially essentially amount to a a, a goddamn pay cut. Right. So the, the, trying to synthesize all this. So workers have been working more. They've been more productive, um, but they have been less organized in unions. Um, more of the profits that have been made have been sucked up and siphoned off by the bosses, by Wall Street, by the ruling class. The, we've, we've gone the longest period in American history without the federal minimum wage getting raised. It's still an abysmal like $7.25 an hour. Um, and, you know, like you, you can really only push people so much, right? You can, you can only uh, like pay them so little when the cost of living is so high and the 1% is making so much money that, you know, eventually something's going to give. And I think that you know, in the course of the pandemic, workers sacrificed a whole hell of a lot to keep society from falling apart, to keep themselves and their families afloat. And I think, you know, they rightly expect to be kind of, you know, respected and rewarded for all the sacrifices that they have made, not just during the pandemic, but even before that. Uh, and of course, they're not getting it, right? And so, you know, we we are actually seeing uh, a num like quite a significant number of uh, workers in the United States saying, you know, this is not good enough. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to push back. So awesome. Thank you so much for, uh, just really setting both the like contemporary context for us in terms of the sort of impact of COVID on, on all of this and sort of the impact of sort of, um, corporations, uh, choice to, to not pay workers adequately and to not take care of their safety protections, all that stuff. Um, and as a, a fellow historian, um, I really love that the background that you laid out for us. And so I just sort of have like a brief follow up. Um, and, and I don't want this to come off as like, I'm, I'm trying to sort of blame workers because I'm not, but I guess I'm kind of wondering, um, you know, why is it that, um, people became less interested and, in, in sort of unions and unionizing in the eighties. Right. So like, I understand that, that Reagan and, and Republicans were very, very anti-union. And I know that there was like a pretty successful, essentially like PR propaganda campaign to sort of convince everybody that capitalism was was benefiting everybody and um, that everyone would prosper and that we the federal government needed to pull back significantly on like federal aid and centralization and all these kind of anti-Marxist pro-capitalist ideas. But I guess I'm kind of wondering like, why that was successful for people of the working class. And again, I'm not trying to sort of blame them but at all, but I guess I'm just sort of wondering sort of why is it that people became less um, willing to strike if sort of we saw a lot of that, a lot more people striking in, in the 80s and prior? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we can definitely have uh, a whole show on that one question alone because I think it's a really important mm -hmm. one. And, you know, there's, 
I suppose it's a cop out to say there is no one answer, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that it's important for folks to kind of remember that, you know, the 1970s was was not a great kind of time for a lot of working people in this country. Um, You know, a lot of people uh, were financially hurting. Um, You know, there was a lot of, I think, kind of, uh, you know, disaffection with the political establishment in the wake of. Uh, the Vietnam War in the wake of Watergate, right? And so, so you know, people had kind of lost a lot of faith both in the government and you know they were rapidly losing faith in you know like the the economy, um, you know, over the course of the 1970s. And then here comes you know Ronald Reagan with this sort of new uh, f- political and economic philosophy um, that I think a lot of people bought into, you know. Some some people bought into it like wholeheartedly. Some people were a bit skeptical, but you know, I think that you know a lot of the conditions were there for people to feel like this may be the best option at a time when a lot of folks were struggling. So, like to maybe give one concrete example, um, you know, you you guys mentioned the John Deere strike that's happening right now, right? And this is a really you know significant strike. Um, for a number of reasons. Um, one, it's in the private sector. So this is like the largest private sector strike since the GM strike in 2019. Um, two, uh, the international leadership had struck a tentative agreement with uh, the union leadership had struck a tentative agreement with John Deere uh, and the membership overwhelmingly voted it down. I think it was like over 90% of people like just said, fuck this, like, you know, this deal sucks. So like, the very notion that you have that big of a divide between the union leadership and the rank and file negotiating with a company that is set to record like record profits of over $5.7 billion this year, right? That, that, that's, that's pretty staggering, right? And it goes back to kind of the, the initial question of like, why are workers quitting? Why are workers striking? Well, it's like, man, shit, look at John Deere. It's like this company is seeing record profits, like five point, they're, they're expected to record between 5.7 and $5.9 billion in profits this year in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty, that's pretty massive. And yet they are asking workers to give up more. And, and like, mm-hmm. there's something that's, that, you know, really doesn't kind of square there. And so workers are rightly saying, well, screw this. But to, mm-hmm. to kind of tie it back to, to your question, Joanna, um, you know, the UAW, of which the John Deere workers are, are a part, you know, is seeing its own kind of internal struggle to, to reckon with this, uh, the legacy of that sort of shift in attitudes that, that really uh, came about uh, and took shape in the 1980s and, and carried forward ever since. But we got to remember that, you know, in like, you know, 1980, like the automotive industry in the United States was not doing so hot. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, after World War II, uh, the U.S. was able to kind of really emerge as like, you know, the dominant economic and political power. Um, you know, we experienced this kind of golden golden post-war boom. Um, and we used our political and economic might to essentially kind of play chess with um, the the rest of the world and help rebuild some countries, help stifle communism in other countries, yada, yada, yada. The point that I'm making is that by the 1980s, uh, countries that had been decimated by World War II, like Japan and Germany, 
were suddenly back on their feet, or I guess not so suddenly, but they were back on their feet. And um, these foreign made cars were presenting a real issue for the American uh, automotive industry. Um, they were cheaper. Uh, a lot of people were buying them. And so, you know, companies like Chrysler were facing bankruptcy around 1980. <clears throat> and so, you know, what ended up happening was, um, you know, the union and its members and a lot of the public kind of bought into this uh, kind of argument that was like to save the American automotive industry, uh, you know, we need to get lean. We need to basically first bail out companies like Chrysler. And then, you know, we need to reopen union contracts to essentially slash pay and benefits and so on and so forth to make this more uh, affordable and more profitable for these companies. And that's what they did. And, you know, the UAW, you know, took that. Um, but then it kept kind of going down that road of essentially always mm. taking concessions uh, for fear that, you know, if they didn't, we would see things like Flint, where, you know, these these um, factories would just close up and move abroad uh, and entire towns would have their the heart of their economic uh, existence kind of ripped out from them. And people were very scared of that. And that also translated to uh, kind of how a lot of people uh, felt and how a lot of workplaces responded to like the 2008 recession. Right. We'll stick with the automotive industry for now. Um, you know, that was really when this kind of uh, 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 an issue that's been coming up in a lot of these strikes is workers are pushing back against what's called a two tier employment system. So at GM, you know, this two tier employment system, uh, when the, the like GM got bailed out by the government in the wake of the recession, um, you know, the deal was basically like, OK, we can't afford, you know, to to stay afloat and you know, keep paying, you know, our union workforce, the rates and benefits that we have now, everyone needs to tighten their belt. And the union did that. But what they also agreed to was the was for GM to create this, this second class of workers who were going to be paid like basically half of what the full time union members were paid. They also started hiring a lot more temporary workers. And what you've essentially ended up with is a shop floor where everyone is doing the same amount of work. But some of them are being paid like three times as much as the temps. Some are being paid, uh, you know, half as much as the full timers. And it creates a lot of division, a lot of resentment. And it's really not fair. But again, like that, just like in the 1980s, that sort of concession was accepted to, you know, quote unquote, save the American auto manufacturing industry. What has changed now, right, is um, people have seen time and again that you know we're actually not in the same boat we're not making these sacrifices together because like gm look what happened you know years later after workers and the union took those concessions after they tightened their belt after they were essentially promised that when gm was uh you know profitable again and back in the black that they would be rewarded and how did how did CEO Mary Barra award them reward them? Uh, she rewarded them by uh, mass layoffs um, a couple mm. years ago. I think over fourteen thousand GM workers uh, were were laid off. Um, plants like the famous plant in Lordstown, Ohio, were shuttered, and uh, GM was making like huge profits and you and paying like their shareholders, right? <laughs> so like mm. so this this is kind of a long winded way of answering your question, but it's like. I think people bought into that philosophy and um, 
you know, accepted this notion that, you know, we did not need a strong labor movement to survive for a number of reasons. One, on the labor movement side, it was out of necessity, right? You know, for a lot of folks coming out of the 1970s when the kind of post-war boom really sort of petered out. Um, and two, once the economy started, I think, doing better, like when you get into the 90s and early 2000s, like when I grew up, uh, you had this like kind of you know, belief with the dot-com boom, with the real estate boom, it felt like the economy was doing um, well enough that there was enough pie for everybody, that, that you could uh, make your way to a middle-class or upper-middle-class existence if you just put your head down, you worked hard, you went to college, you got that job training, yada, 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 right? So it seemed like, you know, workers individually could advance um, to a comfortable, um, dignified existence without the support of a union. And I think a lot of people bought into that, myself included, our family included. And then a lot of that came crashing down in the 2008 recession. And we realized just how uh, stacked the deck was in favor of corporations, the super rich, um, the, the banks that really precipitated that kind of economic crash while you know those are the people who got bailed out while families like mine just kind of were left flailing in the wind after the recession and so that same that you know people really the 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 wool came off a lot of people's eyes in the great recession um when they started to see the rig game and we saw that people developing that language to discuss what they were seeing, whether that be in Occupy, whether that be through the Bernie Sanders campaign, whether that be through other social movements that have really like pointed out this kind of ec corrupt economic system that is screwing all of us over, um, that is exploiting workers, yada, yada, yada. And yet that class of people, the ruling class, the business class, you know, the, the, the corporate class, whatever you want to call them. Um, I, I love Richard Wolff's term of the order giving class. They could not help themselves. Right. And, and what we are seeing now is that even though they are sitting on a tinderbox of labor unrest and of, of a working class that um, can't keep up with the cost of living that just went through like a, a horrifying pandemic. These bosses and these businesses still can't help themselves from trying to basically grab as much cash as they can, stuff it in their pockets, and and run away with it, right? You know, whether that be John Deere seeing record profits and still trying to squeeze more out of its workers, whether that be uh, Frito Lay that was on, who were on strike in July, they too had seen record consumer demand because during when everyone's staying at home during the pandemic, people eat a lot more chips, right? And so, like mm -hmm. they have been raking in huge profits, and yet they've been pushing their workers to do forced overtime basically every day, seven days a week, running them ragged, paying them less than what um, the kind of standard is in in their their areas, right? So it's just a constant money grab. It's a constant, you know, like um, greedy, voracious effort to squeeze workers as much as possible, to rake off as much profit as possible. And, you know, I think that, again, like what, people may have been more willing to make their, those concessions and tighten their belt in times like 1980 or in 2008, when it really felt like the economy might collapse and we were all suffering and we all just needed to do what we needed to do to keep the economy going, to keep businesses mm -hmm. surviving. 
that is different now because we're seeing, well, these companies are surviving. They're doing fine. In fact, they're doing great. We're the ones who were not, you know, who are getting screwed over. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you, I mean, laid all this out for us, obviously, but, you know, you were talking about um, the kind of two tier system. And as someone who is belatedly getting, you know, interested in labor issues, I was watching uh, this video. Uh, uh, I think it was tweeted out by the perfect union handle, Twitter handle or something. It was sort of like a, a brief uh, clip of a bunch of the John Deere workers who were striking. And, and so people were saying very much about what you're saying, that there's this two tier system. And then John Deere is trying to introduce like a third tier where like new hires don't get a pension, which is like total bullshit. And um, there was one uh, one guy who basically who was like, we don't need a bigger slice of the pie like we need a bigger pie, kind of referring to what you were talking about. And I thought it was really interesting how a lot of the workers were framing it in the sense of like, we don't want future generations to suffer like we want future generations to have what we had, if not better. And I and I really kind of like that kind of communal um, framing and kind of more like future oriented framing, right, that it's not just about current workers, it's about future workers and within their community, which are that was really interesting, which really upends, right, this real like capitalist kind of propaganda that's been spewed since the 80s. And a lot of people have been buying into as you laid out for us really well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really, really uh, great and important point, right? Because um, it's it's also this speaks to, I guess, uh, all of the folks who are listening, right? You know, like there are a lot of um, there's a lot of work for us to do on our side as well, right? We have to learn, you know, how to interpret uh, these struggles, how to understand what's at issue in these struggles, because for most of our lifetimes, you know, labor has not been a central part of our news intake. And there are actual like very important reasons for that, right? You know, like uh, there, there's a reason why kind of the, the you know, labor movement and workers' struggles have either not been covered at all or if they have been covered, you know, over the past two, three decades, they're usually covered in very unsympathetic light, right? You know, like I, I grew up with that stuff where if any, you know, labor union was um, kind of raising issues in their workplace, the media was always like, oh, these these overpaid workers who you can never fire, you know, are, are hurting, you know, these teachers are hurting your students, your, your kids, you know, or, you know, they're being greedy and uh, affecting your daily life as a consumer and you should be pissed off about that, right? So there's a lot of both unlearning of that kind of corporate propaganda that we've been saturated by for, you know, decades. There's also a lot of kind of learning about um, the fine grained issues that we've never really had occasion to learn about unless we've actually been in a union. And as we've discussed, the vast majority of American workers have not been in a union. Um, and so that's why like issues like the, the two tier question are so important. But I think you know, for, for folks who are listening, like, you know, they may be used to just hearing about how underpaid people are or how much they're being overworked. And like those issues make sense, right? Because we've all been underpaid. Uh, we've all been overworked and we've all kind of just grown accustomed to thinking that those are, you know, wages and benefits and work time are basically the only three things that unions ever negotiate over. Um, and we won't go into all the reasons why we think that or, or how unions and the media have kind of uh, helped create that sort of image. So something like the two-tier push right now is really important uh, for what you just said, Joanne, is that like this is a real lesson in solidarity that um, you know the the unions, I think, are showing us. 
um, because they are refusing to do what their predecessors did when they created these two tier systems, right? Again, you know, the UAW uh, in the auto industry like created this two tier system under you know really uh, tough conditions uh, in in the wake of the financial collapse in 2008. So like you know you can't you can't be like too judgmental i suppose but i mean there were people at that time who were saying like this is bad this is going to create an underclass of workers um and you know there was supposed to be a cap on how many new hires um or how many workers you know these companies could put in that lower tier of workers who were going to be paid like i said before half of what the full-time you know long-term union uh workers were being paid and that's that's exactly what happened, right? There was supposed to be a cap, and in practically every case, you know, that cap was just eliminated. And what we have seen over the past ten years or the past five years, if we're if we're talking about places like Kellogg's, because Kellogg's, this is also what they're striking over. They had they created a two tier system at the cereal giant, you know, the the cereal manufacturing plants back in I think 2015 with their last contract when the company wasn't doing as well. And again, the situation was uh, we can't afford to, you know, keep hiring and paying, you know, full time union workers with their wages, benefits and retirement packages. So we need to be allowed to hire this second class of worker who is going to be doing the same amount of work, uh, but is going to be paid half is not going to get the benefits and retirement packages that the other workers get. Uh, but we're going to keep it capped at like 25% and we're not going to go over that. We promise. Well, lo and behold, what happened, right? <laughs> they, they, the company just, and they just end up, they found a way to circumvent, you know, what the unions are supposed to be there to protect. And they found a way to essentially kind of fill their workforce uh, ever, ever increasingly with this underpaid, underprotected, um, you know, workforce. And what and and you know the 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 old timers in the union can see the writing on the wall. They know where this is going. They're like, if we keep going this way, what these companies essentially want to do is they want to phase us out, right? They're they're gonna kind of take the existing old timers and and long timers. They're gonna kind of pay you know what they need to pay. Although with every bargaining session, they're gonna try to chip away more at their at their you know, pay their, their healthcare, their retirement packages and so on and so forth. But basically they're like, all right, we'll contain this group of union workers and essentially kind of wait until they all retire or leave. Then, you know, the, we're going to increase this underclass of underpaid, uh, underprotected, lower benefit workers. And that's going to become like our main workforce. So workers at Kellogg's, at John Deere, and increasingly more in the automotive industry, uh, are saying like this is a recipe for disaster. We know where this is going. We need to stop it now. We need to raise the floor across our industry so that anyone who's working here is you know going to be paid uh, a fair amount. They're going to be protected just like everybody else. And so, it, like I said, it's a real lesson in solidarity to see you know folks like you know who like Dan Osborne, who I spoke to. Um, uh, at the from the Kellogg's picket line in Omaha, Nebraska. He's the he's worked at that Kellogg's plant there for 18 years. He's the serving as the president of the the local union, uh, local 50G of the BCTGM. You know he's not really 
asking for anything for himself uh, in this strike. And yet he and, and all the other long timers are putting everything on the line so that the guys that they work next to who are making half as much as they are uh, can get paid what, what they deserve. Right. And that's, that's ultimately what a union is supposed to mean. It doesn't always mean that we have a long way to go to correct kind of the, the problems within the labor movement itself. But this is what it's supposed to mean. It's a, a union at its core is people having your back at work, right? Most of us uh, in the American workforce have only ever known what it's like to be in completely and imperially alone in the workforce, right? You know, it is really, it, it is up to you. If the boss has a problem with you, uh, you, you you're basically fucked, Um you know, but like the, the, the sense that we are workers as a collective and that we can collectively express uh, our need, uh, you know, uh, advance our needs and our wants and express our power is something that most of us have never really thought about or experienced in, in practical life. But that is what a union is ultimately supposed to be. And, and that, I think, is like what, you know, the, the rank and filers are showing in places like John Deere, in places like Kellogg's, um, but also, you know, like we mentioned some of the other strikes and folks should really, you know, pay attention to all the strikes that are happening, uh, not just kind of the new ones that are cropping up. But as we mentioned, like over 30,000 Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers in like Oregon, California and Hawaii have authorized a strike. Um, 1,100 coal miners in Alabama have been on strike since April, right? And they are heading into the holidays. Uh, you know, they need help. They need support. You know, they are holding the line and they are facing kind of like uh, scabs hitting them with their cars on the picket line, right? It's really, it, it's, it's, it's rough going on strike, right? And 800 uh, nurses in Worcester, Massachusetts at St. Vincent Hospital have been on strike since March. Um, over 400 whiskey distillery workers at Heaven Hill Distillery in Kentucky have been on strike since September, right? So there is a lot uh, kind of happening, and I think um, a lot of folks are seeing these other unions kind of stick up for themselves and stick up for their co-workers. Um, and I think that that is making people feel a little more emboldened uh, than really we ever have in this country. Yeah, I mean, you're really laying out the terrain for us. Um, and, and actually, one thing I'm thinking as you're talking, you know, there's a way in which the simple act of actually going on strike, um, almost regardless of what the issues are at stake, um, there's like, there's no more radicalizing act a worker can take. There's no act that can produce the kind of class consciousness, fundamental solidarity that's quite like a strike. You know, you go on strike and you are in the most profound way the teammate of your fellow worker. You know, you are, you are taking on the behemoths that are these corporations. Um, it's, you know that the state is against you, is a, is a raid against you, the police are against you. You know, everything is against you. The only people you have are each other in those moments. And, you know, like I've been on strike and I've had my foot driven over by a car while I was on a picket line. Uh, and I was lucky on that occasion. I just happened because I'm a ridiculous person who often like just leaves myself down to the last pair of shoes or boots <laughs> in my closet. Uh, I, had, I had a pair of steel-toed boots. And that's what, I wore, that's what I wore to the picket line that day 
just out of convenience and it saved my foot in that situation, right? But that person was just angry. I mean, I was doing an information picket and they were angry that we were slowing them down from entering York University and they drove over my foot. Um, but like what, the reason I'm bringing that up is like that, that for me though, right? That's a profound solidarity that I feel for the rest of my life. Anytime I see these stories like of, of the, the violence that happens on picket lines, you know, I know I, in a profound way, I know I am on the same side as those workers, whether or not their work experiences are as identical, you know, to mine, the experience that they've had. Although, let me just say, based on your analysis of what's happening in all of these different sites of labor that you've been laying out for us, I mean, that's what's happening in the academy too, right? Like, we're not hiring more tenure track professors, we're hiring contingent labor. It's all part of the same project. Um, it's really an identical project. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so, happening. It's happening. Uh, I'm glad you you, you mentioned that because that was going to be like kind of my next point is like, you know, this is not just happening in like manufacturing. Uh, you know, we've already mentioned that it's happening in healthcare. We've already mentioned that, um, you know, even fast food workers are kind of, you know, a lot of folks are quitting in fast food. Um, but there are folks who are also trying to stay at their jobs and fight for better wages and working conditions. I think we, we saw, um, a lot of McDonald's workers in Milwaukee, uh, recently walked off the job. Um, but you know, fast food is one of those areas that is like especially hard to organize because the pay is so low because the turnover is so high it's like how can you organize you know a workplace when you know half the people that you start the organizing drive with probably won't be there to see it through to the end right that's another issue that we saw at amazon amazon's turnover rate i think the new york times said that it's like 150 percent which is like it which is insane which is like it's basically like the ship of theseus right where like if you start a year with a certain workforce and then by the end of the year like no one there uh, was is part of the workforce that started the year like what does that actually mean it means that it's really really hard to to kind of see through a union a union campaign yada 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 but to to your point Nate that um this is happening everywhere right this is this is what class war looks like I think a lot of us are just sort of starting to uh wake up to it right because yes a lot of the stuff same shit is happening in academia like granted academia is by and large, in a bad way right now, but there's still a lot of contradictions that people are seeing that are really pissing them off, right? Like at Duke University, um, you know, the university is touting, right, this kind of historic growth in its endowment at the very same time that it is telling, you know, faculty whom it has pushed like more work onto over the course of the pandemic that, oh, you're, we're not going to be paying you more for that extra work that you're doing, but look how big our endowment is. It's like, motherfucker, why do I care? Like, you know, like if I, that endowment isn't going to like pay the people who make, you know, like your university run, then what good is that endowment? That's like a, a, an analog to, you know, John Deere saying like, Hey, we're made, we made $5.7 billion in profit this year, but you need to take a, a cut to your retirement plan. It's like, why? <laughs> like, why am I doing that? Like, what sense does that make? But yeah, I think the the highlighting how this is how the ruling class is trying to, uh, you know, essentially like lower the floor at wherever they can, right? Unions, um, you know, like the BCTGM, like, uh, you know, folks in the UAW at John Deere or, you know, at, at the um, Kellogg's, right? They are fighting to raise the floor for their fellow workers. What the bosses are trying to do is lower the floor for everybody, 
And they are doing that in in academia. That's a perfect analog, right? So you had like the the what was it? Over the past 40 years, I think people who listen to the show probably know the stats, but just in case they don't, uh, 40 years ago, the percentage of um, kind of the teaching workforce in the average university was like 70% tenure track uh, faculty and 30% contingent faculty. Now those numbers have completely flipped. It's like 25% or less are tenure to tenure track. The rest are contingent faculty, meaning adjuncts, lecturers, even graduate students who are making up for all of that, uh, you know, teaching and grading and you know, so on and so forth, right? But as we all know, those adjuncts, those lecturers, those grad students, they're paid like shit. They do not get the same sort of protections. So many people are basically working and trying to cobble together a life on a semester-by-semester -semester basis because they don't know if they're going to have another job uh, next semester. Right. So that is how the floor has been essentially bottomed out in the academic workforce to say nothing of how, uh, you know, universities used to have like, you know, more of their own like groundskeeping and janitorial staff. And now they've like subcontracted most of that stuff out to, you know, like other employers, you know, who can who can kind of set their own wages for workers and yada, yada, yada. Right. It's been hollowing out what used to be a better paid and better protected workforce in the academy same thing is happening you know beyond that right think of gig work as a as a form of this right you know right as we speak uh taxi drivers in new york most of whom are immigrants are preparing to go on a hunger strike because they have been pardon me because they have been um you know, left with so few other options, right? Think of how uh, how bad your situation has to be for you to consider going on a hunger strike over labor issues. That's where these work, these taxi drivers in New York City are at right now for a number of reasons. One, um, because the gig companies that um, have kind of upended that market and and like there are a lot of ways that those gig companies like you know there were regulations on kind of how much they could be in the city and they really just blew past all of that so they really you know taxi drivers uh who used to be able to kind of make a living and sustain a family on their work um now have seen their kind of wages bottom out as a kind of race to the bottom has happened with uh Uber and Lyft and so on and so forth but that's not even like the only issue the other issue is that you know the city gives out these um <clears throat> medallions as it were like these kind of like uh, licenses and uh, and crests that you put on like the car to signify that you know you you are an approved taxi driver yada yada yada. Uh, there are a lot of details here that I would encourage folks to read. Luis Feliz Leon's great piece in The Baffler about this struggle. Um, but anyway, the city has conspired as well to essentially like make uh, this largely immigrant taxi driving workforce kind of pay a shit ton of money for these medallions and then like finance uh, their ability to do that with like predatory loans. And so they have been in kind of this race to the bottom, both, you know, precipitated by the gig economy and through this exploitative uh, model of, of um, paying for the kind of medallions that allow them to be certified taxi drivers. And, you know, they, they, they're workers who have, like, committed suicide. There were high, uh, there, were, there were stories, you know, horrible stories over the past few years of taxi drivers, you know, committing suicide because of this. These are the real human stakes of what we're talking about here. But again, if you look at this in the, in the from a bird's eye view sort of way, right, 
the the traditional forms of work um whatever those may be you know but essentially kind of more of a an ex workers had more of an expectation right that they could um you know work a certain job make a certain wage stay you know for a certain amount of time you know in different industries like that has been eaten away in so many ways and undercut by so many quote unquote innovations like the gig economy that have essentially yeah like created that second tier class of workers who are paid like crap who are cannot unionize gig workers right now cannot unionize um farm workers have been historically carved out of um kind of federal labor protection so that they have long been a kind of permanent underclass health uh, home care workers um have long been in that sort of nether category as well right so there are so many ways that um you know from individual uh companies to you know industry-wide problems to the economy writ large what class war looks like is all these different ways that you know the the order giving class the bosses so on and so forth have essentially like cut the ground out from under us and you know found ways to create these second and third tier classes of workers who are paid less who can be fired at the drop of a hat um and and we we need to push back because this this is what bernie sanders called the race to the bottom right this is there's just a downward funnel feeding us into a you know meat grinder we know where this is all headed and if we want to stop it we have to kind of collectively push back against it and i'm just i'm just nodding along with you uh, on my end but Okay, so if we're going to talk about class war, right, which I think you rightly are characterizing this as, and all these different fronts in a kind of class war, it seems like probably the biggest front in sort of the the future of the American class war is going to be it's going to be fought via Amazon, um, because just because of the sheer size of the company, the fact that it continues to grow and subsume workers from other sectors. I'm so curious to hear what you think this kind of, you know, growing um, class consciousness, the, these very concrete labor actions, what they're going to mean for workers organizing at Amazon. Um, now, a couple, couple aspects to this. So one, we've just learned that Amazon workers under Christian Smalls, uh, the worker who was fired by Amazon at the beginning of the pandemic for trying to organize under, around COVID protections, um, that, uh, so those workers in Staten Island have filed for NLRB recognition, which is to say that we are likely to see um, a unionization campaign emerge in Staten Island, right? Um, and of course, this year, the big labor story prior to Striketober, um, not the only story, as you've very clearly laid out, but the big, so, so to speak, the big story, the story that got national attention was down in Bessemer, Alabama, where um, there too, Amazon workers attempted to unionize. And that effort was, you know, I mean, quote unquote, defeated. Amazon pulled out every trick imaginable in the book. American labor law does almost nothing to protect workers. Amazon, um, you know, pulled out all the stops there. There's very clear. So I don't even want to really talk in terms of winning and losing because it's a completely rigged game. You were in Bessemer. Um, and I know that you got to know the folks involved there. I'm really curious if you think, not to say that you're necessarily an expert on what's happening in Staten Island, but I'm curious if emerging out of Bessemer, given the moment we have the, the kind of slightly new context, even though not that much time has passed, do you think things are going to look different in terms of Amazon organizing? Are there things that we can learn from Bessemer that maybe can make us optimistic about um, 
different outcomes because it does seem to me like if we can actually see unionization at Amazon and all kinds of different warehouses and beyond, um, that is where you know you start to get big wins when it comes to the labor movement and the class war. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's um, I remember after Bessemer, um, you know, after the the you know union vote failed, um, I did this, uh, I hosted this panel for the great magazine Labor Notes, uh, kind of reflecting on on Bessemer, and uh, one of the panelists was the great. Uh, labor organizer with the ILWU, uh, Peter Olney. And he said very matter-of-factly, he was like, look, if you were on the left, uh, there's no greater call to action right now than to go unionize Amazon. Like, he is very firm in that, that he's like, this is where our, our attention needs to go right now. For a lot of the reasons that we talked about when that uh, unionization effort was happening in Bessemer, and as you as you mentioned, Nate, I was down there um, covering it for the Real News Network. Um, and I interviewed some workers, some organizers, got to talk to a lot of folks. And um, yeah, we are now kind of seeing that the National Labor Relations Board has stated that Amazon broke the law uh, in trying to thwart this unionization effort. And so, you know, workers should get another shot at voting for a union. And I think what we're hearing already is that Amazon's, you know, getting the band back together. They're already starting the the, you know, uh, mandatory union busting uh meetings or the captive audience meetings where they're going to scare all their workers into the horrors of joining a union and how Amazon is one big family and blah 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 blah. So anyway, like the 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 point being is um you know, we saw when that drive was happening not only like kind of, you know, the the necessity of a union in Bessemer and what it would mean for the you know flesh and blood workers there in a majority black town that has seen that has been ravaged by deindustrialization i mean the 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 site where the massive amazon fulfillment center in Bessemer is now it was formerly a site where the steel workers had you know union shops there but you know deindustrialization has really hollowed out that town and um to this day i mean it actually may be worse now um I, it's been a couple of months since i checked but back when we were reporting bessemer had twice the national poverty rate right i mean and so it's it's having a union at a place like amazon which i think has now become the the number one employer in bessemer because it's such a massive facility um that employs so many people right if you have workers there who um you know without a union they are actually making less than the union standard for warehouse work in the greater birmingham area so if you had workers saying like you know we are going to again raise the floor for amazon employees we're going to make you know what workers in this industry uh, should be making um we are going to pardon me we are going to have more of a democratic say over our workplace. Um, you know, we are going to have more of the ability to fight back if and when workers are fired uh, without, you know, proper cause. If and when, uh, you know, the the company breaks the law to kind of prevent organization amongst the workers, so on and so forth. Right? Workers don't have any of that right now. But if you have some of that, then that will mean a whole hell of a lot for the human beings there in Bessemer who are working at Amazon and who are, 
you know, working at breakneck speeds, who are being surveilled um, by sophisticated technology, um, so on and so forth. So that's always like kind of the primary concern for me is like, what is this going to mean uh, for uh, in the lives of these of these workers? But then even like beyond that, like zooming out as kind of hooking it back to what we were talking about before, right? It's going to take us like a while to understand like how much the political economy in this country and beyond have changed uh, over the course of the pandemic. Um, but I mean, the bare fact is, as we said, you know, so many brick and mortar uh, small businesses have either kind of had to go online to survive through like websites like Etsy or through shopping um, kind of portals like Amazon, thus kind of turning Amazon more into like the market itself in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what it wants to be. Amazon wants to be the market. It wants to be the portal through which you make all economic transactions, um, whether that be, you know, buying or downloading a, a video to stream, whether that be cloud service to store your company's data on or the military, you know, like working with uh, Amazon's technology development, so on and so forth. Amazon wants to be the economy as it is. It wants to be the market. And so that, to Peter Olney's point, is is one of the big reasons why we need to have some sort of fucking say in what this company is doing. Like, I mean, obviously me personally, I think that we should nationalize the shit out of Amazon, you know, break up its its respective operations, but, you know, it's not up to me, you know, so what we need to start with is like, we need workers to be organized there to at least be able to push against uh, this company being able to do whatever the hell it wants. And Amazon does deal with uh, with union workers in places like Europe, like in Italy and whatnot. Um, so there is a precedent here. The United States has just become such an anti-union country that like we're really starting very far behind the eight ball there. But um, you know, so so this is by a long way of saying like the stakes of unionizing Amazon are incredibly high. Uh, not just because of how much of our economic transactions it has absorbed into itself, but also because of how big the workforce is, right? And how global Amazon's reach is, right? This is this is an entity that has more power over most of our lives than like most government agencies. And yet we have no say whatsoever over what it does, just like Facebook, right? And these other kind of big tech companies that, that you know, have, have so much power over us, but we have just no power whatsoever to dictate what they do, yada, yada, yada. So the stakes of unionizing Amazon both for individual workers and for all of us are incredibly high, which is why Amazon will always fight so damn hard to prevent that from happening. And we saw that in Bessemer, right? We saw the, the lows to which the company would stoop. We saw the lengths to which it would go to thwart this union effort. Um, and you know, it's, it's already starting that again. It's been doing that, um, you know, in, you know, workplaces around the country it did that in Staten Island. Like, like you mentioned, they fired Christian Smalls. Um, and, and now workers there are, you know, trying kind of a new sort of strategy to, uh, unionize, um, that fulfillment center there in New York city. Um, a lot of it, if you're asking like, you know, what we learned from Bessemer, or what we're trying differently, it kind of depends on the context. And I, and I don't mean that 
like a like a co- academic cop out to the question, but like you know, one of the contexts for um, the Bessemer uh, Union Drive is like you know, the, Alabama, granted in the South has a higher union density than I think any other state in the South. So like Alabama does have a long proud union tradition, but yet it still is a deep red state. It still is a uh, right to work state where, um, you know, unions have been kind of vilified and, and beaten back for many, many years. Right. So there's a lot of like propaganda, you know, preying upon the brains and and hearts of workers at Amazon when they were trying to unionize. And there are also just a lot of laws, you know, that are stacked in favor of the bosses that make it so much harder for workers to actually unionize, yada, yada, yada. So anyway, the con trying to unionize in Alabama was always going to be a really uphill battle, right? Um, in New York City, there, there may be more daylight because you know New York City is a union town traditionally. Um, so there is more of a tradition and an infrastructure there for you know a, a, an organized labor movement to potentially make more advances than uh, we were able to do in Bessemer. But even like zooming out beyond that, um, you know there everyone has probably heard that uh, the Teamsters have have announced a, a campaign to unionize Amazon. That context is also different, right? You know, the Teamsters have a lot of issues, you know, to work out. Um, so that like is a is a, a problem, you know, like that that a lot of folks are talking about. Like, how do we unionize Amazon through the Teamsters? But also, how do we make sure that like if we are successful? that it's actually worth the effort, right? That we're not kind of like just saying we're unionized Amazon, but workers have gotten like a really shit deal, right? So that's, you're seeing kind of an internal battle there with like kind of a rank rank and file caucus within the Teamsters. Teamsters pushing for like a democratic union, uh, they have a union election going on right this second, just like the UAW is currently voting. The membership is, is currently voting on a big referendum that would allow the members to directly elect their uh, top international union uh, officials, which would be really remarkable if it passed because it would totally upend, you know, that the decades of uh, the, the union leadership that have overseen uh, that kind of, you know, concessionary posture that has created things like the two-tier wage system. Anyway, I won't go down that path. Point being is that, you know, there's a lot to be excited about in New York. There's a lot to be excited about with the Teamsters. There's a lot to be excited about with the retail, wholesale, and department store union potentially getting another crack at uh, a union drive in Bessemer. But each one comes with its own, uh, you know, problems and and barriers um, to overcome. One of the things that a national campaign like the Teamsters could provide is that you could start in more labor-friendly states, right? You know, you 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 are not limited to Alabama, um, but in like Staten Island, right? Again, like you you're playing more on you know the terrain of a union town, so you do have more of a leg up than folks in Bessemer may have had. Um, but also, if you're you know the Teamsters, you have a lot of different shops to choose from uh, to focus your energy to build wins when you can get them, and then hope that that kind of trickles out to the harder uh, battles to win uh, because Amazon is in a lot of goddamn states. But um, the final, I guess, kind of takeaway point is is that um, what we have hopefully learned from Bessemer, right, is uh, you know it's not as easy as just wanting it, 
right? You can want a union all you want. You can want other workers to unionize all you want, but we have a long way to go to counteract that deep anti-union sentiment that has been cultivated in this country for so long, um, that has convinced so many workers that a union is not right for them, um, and and or that has kind of uh, kept them from understanding what a union actually means, right? And what it can actually do for them, which thus allows bosses to prey upon our ignorance and our fears and, you know, union bust at their leisure. Um, so there, there's a lot more that needs to go kind of into it than that. But I do think um, maybe this can kind of be my, my sort of closing thought, and I appreciate you guys letting me just yak on for all this time. I hope it was useful. But um, I think one of the things that um, I would leave listeners with, right, is, you know, the union defeat in Bessemer hurt a lot for all of us. It obviously hurt for a lot of the workers there in Bessemer. Um, and there was a kind of weird sort of debate happening in the wake of Bessemer of like, oh, you know, even people on the left and people in labor like scolding the rest of us being like, you shouldn't have gotten your hopes up or you shouldn't have like, you know, reported on this as much as you did because then, you know, you got people's hopes up and then when we lost, like it's, it'll set us back. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's not really how people work, is it? Right. You know, people, I'm not going to tell people not to get excited that workers are trying, are standing up for themselves and may have a chance to, uh, you know, like have more dignity in the workplace. Right. And even if the workers in Bessemer didn't win that union election earlier this year, um, you know, it really did, I think, kind of play a role in what we're seeing now, what we started this conversation with, with Striketober, with this great resignation, with this kind of increasing labor militancy and labor consciousness, right? More and more workers are kind of really like saying to themselves like this is not good enough um i'm worth more than this uh, i deserve better than this uh and so they're either quitting their jobs and demanding higher pay or better or more fulfilling job or they're they're you know working with their coworkers to fight against the bosses to uh improve their working conditions uh in places like john deere and kellogg's and so on and so forth what I think is really important is to see this as an interconnected thing and to do the work, all of us, to make it an interconnected movement, right? To bridge these respective struggles so that they feel more connected to one another, that the the struggles that we are all kind of facing in our workplaces and in this rigged political and economic game, that we find that common ground and we use that to build more collective power amongst us. So I think that people saw the struggle in Bessemer and they were inspired by it. They were emboldened by it. They learned, you know, more of like, you know, how bosses like Amazon are going to fight against them. And now we're seeing more people kind of take notice of the other struggles that have emerged after Bessemer. And I think that is where perhaps we can make a final sports analogy. I'll give listeners just one, right? Because a lot of folks have been asking me, like, is this, can we call this a legitimate strike wave now, right? You know, we're seeing more strikes. We're seeing a lot of strike activity, more strikes than we've seen in a long time in this country. Is it a strike wave? And I'm like, well, I think for me, what what makes a strike wave, um, as opposed to just like a lot of strikes happening at the same time, um, is are they 
in some way responding to one another, right? So think of the wave, like think about being at a football game, right? Or a basketball game, like, or a soccer game. When you, you know, if you have like a hundred people in the stands throw their hands up, that does not a wave make, right? I mean, like, cause you, they can be in different parts of the stands and throw their hands up and no one else participates. But when you get an actual wave, when you see it happen, when you participate in it, it's because everyone is looking down the way and they're seeing what others are doing and then they're timing their wave, they're participating in it. It becomes a, a collective thing that is more responsive to what other parts of that collective are doing. I think that that is what we are starting to see happen, right? I'm seeing more folks, um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of folks who said like, I saw or I heard about my colleague quitting and now I'm going to quit, right? You know, that inspired me to quit my job. Or people will say, I saw what those workers in Bessemer were fighting for and I went and I talked to the, my workers at my local about going on strike, right? That is where, you know, we all, I think, have a role to play in helping this movement become what it needs to be and making this moment. Uh, making the most of this moment right now, right? So we need to show as much solidarity as we possibly can. Donate to any strike funds that you can. Signal boost workers' struggles as much as you can. Be discerning, right? Don't go around like, you know, uh, spouting misinformation, right? Don't, you know, go around uh, misrepresenting what workers and, and their unions, you know, are asking for, so on and so forth, right? We have to be judicious and we can't make these struggles, these workers pawns in some sort of narrative that we want to spin about what's happening now. We have to start at the ground level and, and go, you know, to these struggles and say, what do you need, right? You know, I'm here, I'm here, I'm paying attention. I'm letting other people know about your struggle. I'm not forgetting about you. I'm donating to the strike fund. I'm not going to forget about the 1100 mine workers in Alabama who've been on strike since April. I'm not going to forget about the 800 nurses who have been on strike in Massachusetts since March. I'm not going to forget about the John Deere workers, the Kellogg workers. I'm not going to forget about all these small struggles that are that are no less significant that are happening all over the place if we can kind of use ourselves and each other and our media networks and our and our wallets and our solidarity to fuse that sort of connection between these respective struggles then we may see the wave as such really take off well max alvarez editor-in-chief of the real news host of the working pot of the working people podcast thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure to come on.